everyone! Welcome to Movies at Midnight podcast, where we discuss movies that we watched and do some traveling inspired by their locations or their themes. I'm Tanya. And I'm Jorge. And today we're discussing Klaus from 2019. Yeah, and I, I thought it was kind of cool that it was written by a guy from Spain. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that uh, so many films were made there, but apparently that's a very popular spot to be making movies. So this is a Santa Claus origin story. Mm-hmm. Who knew? It's yeah. <laughs> the, the, the first time I saw it, I was like, I had no idea. Who knew we needed that? Mm-hmm. No, I'm kidding. I really like it. The, um, the idea. So aesthetically, this movie is so gorgeous. The lighting, the art design, the scope of it. I just really love it visually. And I'll get into kind of the behind the scenes of what went down to create this film. I also think it has some really touching moments throughout between some of the characters. I think it's a unique idea to have a Santa Claus origin story, or at least it's unique to me. I haven't seen too many. I'll get into it more later, but overall I really like it. But there were like a few issues I had with it, but I would still highly recommend it. Maybe where it let me down was I wanted something more fantastical than a comedy, but I think the magical parts outweigh what I have issues with, so I personally like it overall, and I think people should watch it. And I'm in a similar boat. I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was really cute. Artistically, this film kind of blends 2D with 3D, like, so some of those changes are, are really cool to watch. The colors um from the different locations it's it's really cool which subtle and i didn't pay attention to it at least my first time around um till now watching it the second time and then kind of going through some of those um in terms of the the colors and themes that that the towns or the areas uh represent on the surface uh it's a great story with the origins of uh santa claus and things like that but santa Father Christmas, Saint Nick, it's this mythical being or real person changes through different parts of the world. And so I like that they chose to tell this story um, because it's great hearing different people's point of views on their traditions and how they see Christmas and the, the person that they may or may not believe in and how those traditions are passed on to kids. Yeah, I was like, oh, how excited are you going to get in? Are you going to be about this one? Because it talks about the lore of Santa Claus in a in a different way pertinent to the story. But I remember you being like, oh, the lore of, of Halloween and where did it come from? And I'm like, this is its own lore within the story. So it's kind of fun to see. And I thought you'd enjoy. I also enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it as someone who enjoys doing research and like looking into things as well. I dreaded it because everything was a rabbit hole because it's like, well, in this part of the world, right. we do this, Y, and Z, or like the origins are this, and then it's slightly different compared to other parts of the world. Even the name Santa Claus isn't that old when you compare it to like Father Christmas or like Saint Nick and things like that. So Interesting. Yeah, it's it's one of those things you just have to accept like there is no one answer it's different for everyone that was a really unique point to take for this age-old story so i really like that and i just want to encourage uniqueness in filmmaking because i know everyone's like money driven not everyone but 
the studios are more so movie uh, money driven. But yeah, these unique stories are important and more interesting just for continuing the art of filmmaking. I love that you said the studios are money driven because money or some like what are you in it plays a really big role in the theme in this movie. So think about what motivates you to do things and are you really doing acts of true acts of goodwill to spark another or are you doing it for selfish reasons (laughs) yeah or letters sure uh with that i'll get into the summary a listless and spoiled young man jesper is sent to the northern island of smearinsburg as a means of reform His postmaster general father hopes challenging Jesper with the most difficult post worker posting will change his ways. So I don't know enough about postal work to know the right verbiage, I suppose. Jesper is to post 6,000 letters in a year or he will be cut off monetarily. Upon arrival, he finds a small town cut off from the rest of the world, controlled by two warring families, the Ellingbos and the Crumbs. Their hatred is tradition. Dating back centuries, all but consuming the town. Jesper desperately searches the entire town, but not one letter can be found. Learning of a woodsman living alone, far outside of the town, Jesper embarks on the long journey to his home. While initially frightened of this man, Klaus, due to his large stature and numerous axes, the two end up delivering a toy to a little boy in the dead of night. Word spreads, and more children want toys. Jesper takes advantage of this opportunity and states they must write letters to Klaus in return for toys. A nearby school teacher, Alva, who had all but lost hope of teaching, opens her classroom doors, teaching children to read and write. Quickly, the lore of Klaus grows, one such belief being that only good children receive toys. This changes the entire attitude of the town as children begin doing nice acts for their neighbors. The adults follow suit. The town is warm and inviting. However, the heads of the two opposing families are not pleased, calling a truce to rid their town of Jesper and returning to their warring ways. They help Jesper reach his goal of 6,000 letters and send him on his way. They next plan to attack the biggest shipment of toys yet, as Klaus, Jesper, and Alva had planned a big celebration for Christmas. Though Klaus and Alva are upset at Jasper, Thinking he was using them the entire time as a means to leave, Jesper has fallen in love with the town and Alva, wanting to stay. He interferes, trying to stop the families from destroying all the toys. In the end, the toys were decoys. Jesper did nothing, but shows commitment and the family leaders give up due to their children falling in love. Jesper and Alva have a family of their own. Klaus and Jesper remain great friends, expanding their operation to other towns and the town of Smearinsburg becomes a beautiful and happy place to live. Jesper and Klaus continue delivering gifts for 11 years, but on the 12th year, Klaus disappears, presumably dying. Yet, once a year, on Christmas Eve, Jesper wakes up to see his dear friend who returns to deliver gifts to children. The end. The creation of Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. The scope of this film is huge with so many christmas traditions and like and the film does a cute and clever way of showing us where some of these origins come from yeah i did really like those bits Mm -hmm. and as like i've said in others i really like to take point in the very initial 
scenes and what like the film is setting you up for and we hear jesper's narrative on letters so the film starts by saying you know we don't really send letters out anymore which is true with the the invention of the internet and digital communication how many of us like still send letters to family and friends and jesper talks about how this whole story is about letters and he hints at kids writing to someone for toys but nobody ever really thinks about where it started so hence this movie kind of tells us why kids do this yeah i did really like that uh but we start off before he gets to Smearinsburg in the Postal Academy. He's been there for nine months, blowing it off on purpose because he doesn't want to be a post worker and getting very Cusco vibes from him. The actor is Jason Schwartzman, who I love. Been in a lot of Wes Anderson films. But uh, even his voice sounds a lot like... Uh, oh god, what's his name? The guy from Cusco? Spade. David Spade. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they just sound very similar. And then all the inflection and everything <laughs> and the way he jokes about very Cusco. <laughs> the movie gives us our stakes right off the bat, sets it up very well. His dad is like, you're slacking off. I'm gonna cut you off from all these fine things. I'm not just gonna kick you out of the postal academy and send you home and let you live a lavish life. You are going to this tiny island up north and you have one year to post 6,000 letters and I guess it's a very notoriously not bad but like bad at sending letters town because even some of the other workers there are like you're gonna send him there mm -hmm. isn't that a bit extreme I'm all up for discipline sir but <laughs> Smearinsburg yeah so I wonder why of all the places the dad chose Smearinsburg like the, the dad, he's kind of like, what, the head of the Postal Academy, and I feel like for him, I don't want to say ashamed, or he's just like, how is my son like this? Yeah, disappointed in his children, and I mean, granted, your, your kids are going to do what they want, and they should have free will, and just because you're a postman doesn't mean that your children should also be postmen, but you would think that Jesper would at least have inherited some of his work ethic to be better because they even asked for like the progress report and they were like filing and sorting fail like pigeon fail transporting fragile it's like the worst they've ever seen yeah but he's screwing up on purpose because he wants to get kicked out and not be there yeah. and then like the dad's solution is like i'm gonna send you to this faraway place where they've attempted to set up post a post service there in the past and it's always failed yeah, like, why give your son, who has shown no interest whatsoever, one of the most difficult places that and everyone else has failed at? It's not even like, oh, it's difficult, and he'll work it, he'll work it out. It's like, no one's been able to figure mm -hmm. this out. And, and, and not just that, but even when the dad tells him, like, you're a postman now, you're going here, I felt like in this world, or, or maybe in other similar works, it's like being a postman means something to them. Like, I went through X amount of training and excelled, and I became a postman, and this is my job. Where, like, when he declares his son a postman, even some of, like, the other employees are like, what? You're, you're making him yeah. a postman? Where I was like, ooh, that's kind of like a slap in the face in, in some of your other employees. Because it's like, dude, I earned this and you're just giving it to this kid because he's your son. Nepotism. So I was just like, ooh. Yeah, his journey to 
Smearinsburg is gorgeous. I'll be saying it the whole time. But the landscapes, he's on these cliffs in this little cart with a horse and everything's just so beautiful. And then he gets there. It's very ominous. They have some very ominous shots. And the tone in this movie kind of is one of the issues, one of the things I take issue with because I'm not really sure. It's all all over all over the place. Um, but they have some really ominous shots when he first enters the town. There's this huge skeleton of a fish, which I thought was a really great shot and creepy, but I'm like, oh, it's scary. But then two seconds later, they're just cracking jokes. Yeah, being real irreverent. So I'm just like, oh, okay. And the opening shots of Smearinsburg, if you pay attention to the color palette, like I said, this is something I didn't notice before. Even comparing it to like the Postal Academy area, you have like these greens, blues of the oh, yeah. the uniform. And Very then you bright. get to Smearinsburg and it's all blacks, grays, and a mixture of in between. I thought it was really funny because even the movie points it out where the ferryman tells him like, yep, that's Smearinsburg. You should see it in the spring. The grays really pop. That was funny. Um, There's some great lines in this. And as the town starts to transition from their tradition of hating each other to working together, you'll start seeing a change in the color palettes of mm. Smearinsburg, which I thought was a really creative way of showing the the change. And it's it's subtle at first, but towards the end of the movie, you can see the big, big difference. Jesper is very disappointed, obviously, with the reception, actually the ferryman kind of tricks him into ringing this bell, which is the war bell, which immediately makes the two clans, they call them clans, right? I think so. Start fighting. He's upset where he has to live because, I mean, fair, it is this tiny little shack with a hole in the roof. And he has to cross this tiny little ladder to use the restroom. And it is winter time, so. Yeah, the way that they sold how cold it was, I believed it. I was like, oh, I don't want to be there. It's so cold. I mean, it's probably always winter time there, though, right? I guess when you're that far north, yeah. He starts going around the town, checking everyone's mailboxes, and there's no letters, no one's writing anything, and he opens one mailbox. And I'm like, does someone fart in a mailbox? (laughs) God, I will be the first to admit I'm not very mature when it comes to fart jokes. I love them. I think they're so funny. I was just like, oh my god, that's so funny. Of course they'd fart in each other's mailboxes. Although no one's using them, so... Well, see that when I was looking at the infrastructure of this town and they failed to establish the post office because even the ferryman has stated like this town has figured out a way to communicate with that with each other without having to send letters. So I really started looking through this film as like needs and how things get done. So a lot of us send out a letter or used to send out letters when you're trying to say something or communicate with someone else. But this town is small. We don't know the the full population size, but it it doesn't seem like it's a large town. It's relatively small geographically. So it doesn't take a lot to just walk across town and and talk to someone. Or throw your Um, dirty laundry water on their laundry, (laughs) etc. Or whatever is going on. And then you kind of get into like the 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 two families and how they are constantly like regressing and not prospering because they keep destroying each other's things if you look at it from like a day to day the majority of their time is probably like rebuilding their house because their neighbor did something but i'm like if they fail to establish the post office 
how did anyone even build a mailbox? Or why would anyone build the mailbox? I did put that in my notes. I was like, who built these mailboxes? Like, yeah, why are they even here to begin with? Yeah, then? and um, I, I, thought that, I mean, clearly that he needs to... We also need to be in a familiarized world to relate to Smearinsburg. So everybody has a mailbox, at least where, where I've lived. And so he's checking and... I thought it was really funny that they kind of went into different reasons because he was like, oh, is there a birthday card, a death certificate, a package, like different ways of why someone would use the mail. And here, none of them are doing that. Yeah. So then a child drops a drawing and he's trying and Jesper gets and he's trying to get him to mail it. He's like, oh, let's I can't give you I can't just give you your drawing back, but I can mail it to you. And this is one of the tonal issues because he's being so creepy. It's so weird. Sometimes Jesper is so weirdly creepy and he's our protagonist. We're supposed to like him. And I do most of the time, even though he's a little, a little shit. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, oh, don't, don't characterize him like this. This is uncomfortable because he's like, hey, little boy, you want me to mail this? I just need this one thing from you. And I'm like, ew, stop. Stop <laughs> this now. Later when he's getting everyone to, the kids to send letters to Klaus for gifts, they're doing it like, they're showing it like a drug deal, like a bunch of different drug deals. And I'm like, what? Why? Why would you choose this? It makes them, makes them seem so weird and unlikable, but okay, it's a choice, I guess. And I, I do think a lot of that came down to the comedic effect. Sure, it's definitely trying to be funny a lot of the time, but a lot of the jokes are either tired, not a lot. Some of the jokes are tired. Mostly I saw from the two warring families, from their leaders. Those were very on-the-nose jokes. And the the woman, Crum, she was, I was like, oh, that's like a knockoff Yzma. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesper is in despair after that first day, or maybe first week even. He's kind of surveyed the whole town. You can see his little map has red marks everywhere. And then he sees the woodsman's cabin, which is in this little corner way up north. He decides to go up there. This is another super ominous introduction to a character. He's chopping wood, I think. We don't see his face initially. He's got this axe and I almost said Cusco. Jesper gets trapped in his in his cabin, which is like any cabin lover's dream, I swear. His cabin is so beautiful. But he gets trapped in accidentally so it seems like this big oh this man's coming to kill me moment and it is ominous as fuck that's why i'm just like what are we doing i'm so confused i'm gonna stop talking about the tone until later so jesper runs away and i think he's gonna leave like it seems like he's packing up to leave the entire town out of nowhere klaus shows up and he's like we're delivering this letter and this thing in this package that i have for this kid or he's like where is this place we're going there. <laughs> I like that even your tone changed for <laughs> delivery. We're delivering it. Yeah, I don't right. even know how much, I don't even know if he speaks actually initially because for a real long time he doesn't say much of anything. So they take what happens obviously to be a gift to that kid who was, who had lost his drawing initially. And I did think this was funny, but Jesper's like, oh, I'm definitely holding a severed head in my hands right now. And then so I was like, I think this movie is for 20 to 30 year olds who like miss the nostalgia because some of these jokes are a little too much this is not a kids movie like sometimes it is sometimes it isn't and i think you 
got the target audience dead on. So it's I do think it's this later demographic, but with kids. Mm, so, I see. so this film talks about traditions and doing things because that's what the family does. But we do see this, and I think Shrek was probably one of the first animated movies that was geared to adults, but appearing to be a kids' film. And it was like, how do you maximize profits? Do you target the kids? Do you target the adults? And this way, you do both. It was probably like, like the first mainstream, right? The first first mainstream like, that kind of did it, and it shows like like you were saying, studios are always looking for profits. It showed studios that you can make a huge amount of money. Like I forget how much uh, Shrek actually grossed, but it was a very profitable film by making an animated film where kids are going to be excited about it. But then you put in these adult jokes or these adult themes that probably won't offend kids and parents would be okay to take their kids there because they're like, oh, they're not going to get it. But they get it and then they enjoy it. So then now you go see it in the movie theater, you go out and buy it, you sign up for Netflix and and watch it there. I feel like Renaissance era Disney was very good at that. I mean, theirs were aimed at the younger audience, but they definitely slipped in jokes for the adults. So it's kind of like the reverse, Mm -hmm. almost. They deliver the package, and Klaus is watching the little boy play with this toy wind-up frog. Or toad. I don't know, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, And they show him profile, and I'm just like, that's a choice. He has the weirdest nose. His nose looks like a skateboarding ramp. It just like goes up and then it's like so thin. And I'm like, I've never seen that type of nose before in character design. <laughs> so I I saw the nose as that wood chiseling thing where oh. it was like, oh, Santa's workshop. And then there's a scene later on in the film where he gives Jesper that. And I'm not a woodworker, so I, I don't know what that tool is called. That piece of his nose reminded me of that tool that's clever that's probably what it was that's very smart so then the next day at the post office these these three girls show up and they're like oh we want to send letters to klaus for toys and i was thinking how do they know who to send it to but i think the little boy sees klaus that the night before so i'm like oh does everyone know who he is even though he's way up there and then he was like oh klaus or the woodsman up there dropped me off this toy i mean good thing he said that not like he was creepily watching me through the window (laughs) sorry i'm terrible anyways um but that's all that i meant like oh how did they know i'm definitely there because it's the night of so it's like the little boy saw klaus by the window he gets scared and then he like lifts up his lantern now there's there's nobody there but Yeah, maybe back when uh, Klaus and his wife were younger, they used to be part of this town. And then they they left up to the woods. But now it's the morning, Jesper's getting up and kid's already there. So it's like this kid already told his friends, hey, someone gave me a toy and he didn't even send him a letter. Like Jesper delivered the letter. So I don't know how they made that, that connection. But here, Jesper... We're starting to see his motivations, and we already know he wants to get out of Smearinsburg. His goal is to, I guess, deliver 6,000 letters. That's, that's the metric. And this film, kind of like our, our society, is very capitalistic and financially driven, and he knows that he can get out of this town as long as he gets his 6,000 letters. So how is he going to do that? He needs to create the demand. 
And so this little boy actually helped him because he was like, hey, if you do X, if you send this guy this letter, you're going to get a toy. Mm-hmm. And I want that toy. <laughs> so I'm going to send that letter. So they're like, okay, I want to send this letter. Granted, Klaus lives far away. But Jesper is like, hey, I'm going to be the middleman. I'll send him your letter. Mm-hmm. But you need the postage. They say this throughout the film where it's like, it's not a letter unless there's a postage. Okay. So now he's training these kids to kind of like go through him to deliver that. Because like I said, it's a small town. So they probably could have given it themselves. But they go through Jesper and it's like his greed or motivation is now, I see it as just getting out of the town. And I think that the film does a really good job about showing that. And then somewhere between now and the end, his motivations are maybe blurred. I don't know. Believe what you want. Maybe it's not. But he does decide to stay. But I, I still think it's a financially driven reason to stay. Oh, I didn't get that. That's so not nihilistic, but uh, realist. And the, re- the reason why I say financially driven, it's like in, in the end, the dad's like, all right, you met your goal. You, you can come back home. He wants to stay. But I'm like, OK, if he goes home, what is he going to do? He's just going to like sit around at home, probably make some money, probably work at some postman working for someone. If he stays in Smearinsburg, he's essentially second in command to his dad. So I think he fell in love with the town that once it, you know, started being friendlier with Alva and he had such a nice friendship with Klaus. So that's what I'm believing. And may- maybe he did fall in love, but I feel like that money from the town. We know how you so. feel. Okay. <laughs> the little boy with the frog toy plays, ends up playing with a little girl from the opposing family. And word gets back to the two leaders. And they have this big setup as to why the town is the way it is. And this is one of my main issues. Actually, my main issue is the villains and their motivation and the way they carry things out. So we go into the scene, like each leader explaining to the their own little child what or why they are warring. And it's general it's just tradition. Oh, we just have been fighting for so many years and we don't want to break tradition. I just didn't like that. And it wasn't well, it was too on the nose. It wasn't nuanced enough for me. I think there is a story to be told where people do things just because that's the way it's always been done, because that is an issue that we run into just in general life. Like, oh, I did it just because. That's the way it's done. <sighs> I don't know. I feel like they had such a good idea and such a, a cool, unique story to tell. It was just a nothing conflict in my mind. It was easy, easily enough solved, which it is in the end, and I'll talk about that later. Like, so what? What are the stakes? That's not good enough stakes for me. I don't know. I felt like you could have done something more nuanced that we would have been either we would have related to more it would have been we would have cared more because also these villains are kind of the backseat which is i'm fine with because obviously the story is about how santa claus came into existence then why even have him i'm not sure if you need them then make it a story all about him about santa claus i know it is one of the reasons it's there is because it sets up the lore of being naughty or nice like the naughty or nice list but you can find another way to do that I noticed several decisions that the creative team or the writers went with. I like that both sides of the families are essentially equal just on other sides of the town versus them saying the crumbs were were rich and the Ellingbows are the poor. They're 
the same people granted it seems like the town is in poverty and it's probably because they keep breaking each other's stuff but they weren't making that distinction in a social class although jesper when he goes to klaus and he's like oh the poor children in the town like he doesn't say the kids in the town it's like the poor children want these toys and that's why he's delivering his letters when the families are talking they never really say why and so i feel like the the writers decided not to give us the origin what was that original conflict that made them split up and this is us and this is them so here we don't know why they hate each other they just say it's tradition we've always fought yeah and i think the point is how stupid is that i just thought it was it wasn't nuanced enough like it was almost like a placeholder oh we'll, we'll figure out why later mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah, and they probably ran out of time. It's like, all right, well, this is what we got. And no, I don't think so. They, let's let's go with it. And when the Yzma-like character is talking to the little boy, they dislike each other so much that her saying, you playing with this little girl disrespects our heritage. Like, whoa, the, the magnitude of hatred towards one another in this film is really high. Yeah. Well, you see all the terrible things they're doing when he first gets there. But Jesper's post office is having an influx of letters from many children. And it's funny because you hear as he's, you know, walking around town or collecting letters from them, he's hearing the lore. And then I liked it because we heard all the lore. Oh, he comes down the chimney. He puts stuff in your stockings. You get coal if you're bad. And then you get a cut of how that might have come to be. We get squeezed on any chimney! Really? How? I don't know. You leave your socks hanging on the mantle, Mr. Claus will fill them with toys. He only comes when we eat. Oh, and he likes cookies. Don't forget to leave out some cookies. The one house is this kid who was mean to him when he first got there, so he's about to give him a toy, and he's like, no, I don't like you. You're a loser. And he gives him coal. And that was funny because he has this altercation with them later. And he's like, hey, I didn't. You're a liar. I didn't get a toy. I wrote a letter. And Jesper's like, that's because you were a bad, a naughty child. But the way they filmed it was apparently inspired by Breaking Bad. <laughs> one of those scenes in the desert with Walter White. And I think Mike is the character. But you see the sun is overtaking the scene almost, almost, and Jesper's leaning down and the camera's angled up. They said that they took inspiration from other films with some scenes and some lighting, like Apocalypse Now, and I'm like, you are referencing some truly dark movies and shows for <laughs> this happy Christmas time <laughs> Santa origin story. A lot of those dark undertones are Sure. there and it's it's great to have them there just because it really sets the contrast so when you have a happy scene and and the light and the color it's very very different from like the first time we see smearinsburg one of the more touching moments and sad scenes is you see that klaus had a he's running out of toys and Jesper's like, well, we'll make more. He hasn't reached his 6,000 letter goal yet and he has this big idea over oh, Christmas we'll make all these toys for everyone and on Christmas morning they'll wake up with toys. This is the sad moment where Klaus is like, no, I'm done. Like, I'm not making any more toys. And we find out he had a wife and she, they wanted children, they never had them, and then she died young. It's a bit of a, a moment between Jesper and Klaus. He 
kicks him out of his cabin. He's like, get out. I'm not making more toys. There's this little girl who has been coming to the post office trying to post a letter, but she is Sami, and that is an indigenous pheno yorgic speaking people. They live in what is now known as the northern parts of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and parts of Russia. So that was really cool, and it also said in our subtitles, our closed captions, speaking Sami, and I was like, what's that? Jesper finds her there sitting at the post office and he has like this little therapy session with her but then he has an idea to take her to Alva and they try and figure out how to communicate with her. Alva at this point has reopened the school. She was like I said she was pretty downtrodden. She was she turned the whole school into like a fish store but now she's revamped it, used all her savings to pay for all the school supplies which I hear is a very uh Typical thing that teachers actually have to do. That's so messed up. Yeah, so she helps her and they learn together that she wants a sled. So then Jesper tries to make this sled and it's so cute because it's so bad. And he falls asleep. And then Klaus comes down and sees him, his terrible sled, and, you know, helps him make a new one. I think that's kind of how they reconnect, rebond. He's like, okay, I will help make all these toys for Christmas. And Alva's helping and Margu and her family decide to help as well. So we have a lot of people here to help make the toys. But the plan of the warring clans, because they're so mad that their town is now this beautiful, wonderful place to live, they call a truce. They decide to work together to not work together. I get it. It's a joke. But again, it's weak for me as a motivator. So what's their plan? They're gonna help Jesper reach his goal and they actually send out like 14,000 and I'm like you know would be better is if they decide to destroy him and send him back penniless like that would be real stakes what happens is then his dad comes and then Alva and Klaus find out that oh the only reason why he's been doing all this nice things delivering letters for toys is because he wants to leave and I'm like resolution to that all he has to do is stay and that proves the point that no, he maybe that's where he started initially, but now he wants to stay and he's doing it for all the right reasons, which is what ends up happening. But if they destroy all the letters that he sent, send him home destitute, his dad disowns him, then he's ruined as a character. There's no reason for him to stay because it's all done anyways. His dad has disowned him. He can't go back home and live a lavish life. The stakes are higher. We care more. And then even in the end, his dad comes, he says, good job, they leave, and then what does Jesper do? He doesn't leave. Proves his point. He wants to be there. And then they have this, he's gonna save all the toys from being destroyed by the two family head clan people. That's terrible sounding. <laughs> uh, you just say families? Yeah. So we have this huge action sequence of him jumping on it. Feels very the Grinch who stole Christmas with the big bag of presents at the top of the mountain and yeah they all fall off family goes home that was a weird resolution too because i guess they they just decide to give up trying to bring back their warring tradition because two of their immediate children fell in love like that was very rushed and okay uh, very romeo and juliet sure with two opposing families yeah but then the presents were fake so i'm like what was there was no point jesper risked his life for nothing he's like, give him some stakes. There were no stakes then. 
and like make him an active protagonist. He's like, oh, so this was all for nothing? And Klaus is like, oh, I wouldn't say that. And I was like, I would? <laughs> like, if you take a step back, what did Jesper need to do in that ending moment? It's just a little messy, and I just wish it were higher stakes, more tight what people are doing and what their character motivations are. And I just felt a little let down because in the end, they're saying, yeah, Jesper, you're the reason why the town has turned itself around. And sure, I, he's part of it. He's really not the only reason. They give him all the credit. I'm like, Alva, you're teaching children how to read and write, and they're actually really excited to do that. Klaus, you're giving, you're the reason they are reading and writing. Jesper is just the catalyst that kind of started it all. So I just would have liked to see him actually make an impact in that ending moment. But really, that and the occasional tone issues is my only main issue with the movie. And I don't even think it's like a big issue for me because I think the real story is the origin story of Santa Claus. And it's so strong for me that I can overlook it. But that's it. That's all that I was pointing out at the beginning. And then I said when it ended, because Klaus becomes this mythical Santa Claus now, and even Jesper's like, I don't know how it happens, but every year I get to see my friend, which is really sweet. Mm -hmm. And I was like, the work never ends, even when you're dead. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, that is that is true. And um, it's not work when it's a labor of love. Apparently, (laughs) I'm sure that's what your boss is trying to convince you. It's a great movie. And I'll say for for my own selfish reasons and and what kind of resonated with me. But with all that being said, the more and more I dive into this film, it's just like darker and like maybe it's Christmas in America with just like capitalistic messages and things like that. As we were saying in the beginning, this whole film is all about letters. And here was the postmaster dad who's challenging his son. But driven by profits, where he's like, we're not getting profits from Smearnsburg. Let's create a post there and and get money from there. And this film is about how kids started writing letters to Santa. So I started looking into the origins of that. And it turns out that originally, kids didn't write to Santa. It was actually the opposite, where Santa would write. Oh, and actually, I shouldn't even say Santa because Santa wasn't even a thing back then. It was, I guess, like Father Christmas or Saint Nick, which predates Santa Claus. Santa is really like a 1900s, late 1800s figure here in America, mostly. Maybe the they rest... were paying homage to that when the first letter came from Klaus and went to the kid. Yeah, and um, so in uh, and a lot of these origins really focus on northern europe in the scandinavian area and dutch a a lot of them come from there and most of the traditions here in the u.s from that come from those immigrants that came to the u.s and brought those traditions with them so saint nick or noel or insert whatever you call that mythical figure here was really the parents kind of like reflecting on what their kids did this year and they would write them letters kind of like saying oh you've been very good however you're not as nice to your brother as much as or sister as much as i would want you to you don't listen to your parents you didn't do your homework or your chores it's your end of the year evaluation yeah (laughs) that's that's really what it was and it was a, a way for parents to change the behavior of their kids by then also and then it's a time of of gift giving so it was like oh 
Santa's telling me, or sorry, St. Nick is telling me to be good and I'm going to get a gift if I change my behavior. So I just thought it was really crazy how it's like an opposite. And now kids are sending the letters to to St. Nick or Santa. They're being proactive. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I don't quite like that toy you gave me last year. Let me tell you what I really want. uh, The other thing, it was, um, so originally as that transition started happening, kids weren't mailing it to Santa. Some of the earlier traditions, and, and it's associated to the chimney, and we'll get into that connection in a bit, they would burn the letter and the kids would see the letter turn into smoke and go up to the sky and it would reach... Uh, Saint Nick in the North Pole. In Latin, in Latin America, kids would uh, attach their letter to a balloon, Aww. and it would go up into the sky. Those are way cooler um, traditions. <laughs> but right, th- so those are when, and this is where, like, what are your motivations? And we know in capitalistic society, people are greedy. It's like, well, I, I can get money from that. So if kids put a postage on their letter, now we can get money. And uh, a lot of this, and this is like, follow the money, and you see where a lot of these motivations come through. It was getting profits from kids sending letters. Um, Because as kids started sending letters, the post office didn't know what to do with some of those letters. Fair. There was a lot of confusion when there's an actual, like, Nick family or a Klaus family, and it's like, does it go to them? Does it not? At least here in the U.S., as writing to Santa became more and more popular, the post office actually has like a section, I think they call it dead mail, where it's like, if you ever write to a mythical being and they don't know where to deliver it, it it goes there. Um, Is it a fireplace? (laughs) I I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a... A trash bin? Yeah. If anybody's a postal person, let us know what they do with this dead mail, like undeliverable mail. That's where it goes to live forever and ever. They were, yeah, collecting these letters and then people, and then this is early 1900s, were saying like, hey, we want to write back to the kids. Like, we want to let the kids know, yep, Santa got your letter, like this and that. And the post office was originally against that because it was like, it's illegal to open somebody else's mail. You're not Santa. So like, how can you open this letter? And it's just like, I wonder what those meanings were like, where they're like, we want to do this. No, you can't. It's illegal. And even in this film, Jesper references the law. And I think like the, the post service is very government official where he was saying, Klaus, you can't come with me because you're not an official post person. Oh, yeah. And there's probably something against the law. So I thought that was a really funny line to throw in there. L- learning about how people were like, yeah, I'll write back to the kids. Like, hey, I got your letter. Like I'm Santa. And kind of like getting that connection to santa and into a higher a higher level really opening up these conundrum debates that people probably thought they were never going to have they're like uh i signed up to be a post worker (laughs) why am i talking about the legality of opening the letter of someone who does not exist (laughs) and then one of the the headmaster post person or whatever made some permanent changes to some of these policies and started allowing people or like um certain groups to write back to the kids but then like america land of protest there was like charity groups that were against it because they were saying like 
you don't know if the needs of those kids are real or someone's just trying to. I, I don't know if they were sending kids money or actually sending kids the gift. Oh, but they were saying like, you don't know if those needs are real. And that's a very inefficient way of getting uh, help to the poor. One of the other uh, things that like the post office was struggling is like kids aren't very consistent. Like Santa living in the North Pole, I guess, wasn't a major thing. So oddly enough, one of the places... Uh, that was addressed to was also Iceland. People thought like that's where um, Santa lived. And it reminded me, so we visited Iceland a few years ago. And I remember when we were walking down one of the streets in Reykjavik, there was a red, uh, like a, what do you call those things? Not a post office, like the things on the sidewalk, a mailbox that was addressed to the North Pole. And it was like, kids can I don't know, drop off their letter to Santa and then it's going to go, it's going to go there. But some of the other locations was Ice Street, Cloudville, Behind the Moon, like, um, where it was like the post office is like, what, what do we do this? And, very um, creative children. Santa in the 21st century now has an email address. So like, I, I really like this film because it talks about traditions, but also breaking some of those traditions where the families hate each other and now they're coming together. Mm -hmm. And I think finding the balance between what is tradition and keep that versus improving something. Because if you're always improving, like nothing really stays the same and you kind of lose some of that heritage. But nowadays, nobody sends letters. So it's like kids that are growing up on iPhones and like tablets and technology they're not going to write a letter they can associate sending an email so there's like different websites i don't think there's like one true santa.com but you can now send your email of you know writing to saint nick or, or santa claus yeah that is an interesting debate all on its own tradition versus preserving tradition versus advancing and it's like it's all important but yeah, there's some give and take. Finding that balance, I think, is an incredible difficult. I don't claim to know what the answer is, but you also got to stay relevant because then you'd be forgotten about if... Uh... We're always struggling with that issue. So, mm-hmm. But one of the other cool uh, things that we associate with Christmas is like the, the naughty kids get coal. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I kind of struggle like finding that origin because... Uh, in the U.S., we have Santa, and then um, other places have Saint Nick. Italy has La Befana, and they all do various different things, somewhat similar. But um, the article I was reading kind of talks about the chimney being the 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 one unison area, and we see uh, Jesper entering houses through the chimney, and we associate Santa coming down the chimney, and access to coal was very easy. Oh, I see. Now, um, the article talks about in the older times, pre-1900s, I associate chimneys with burning wood. Okay. But before, it was very common for people to burn coal. And that's where the coals were. Now, if you go back even further, fireplaces weren't a common way of heating people's houses back when most houses were made of wood and a fire would have caught the house on fire type stuff. Um, So when I was reading about St. Nick, he actually used to enter through the window. Hmm. And then as chimneys and fireplaces became more common, the story changed to he's now coming in through the chimney. But I couldn't really find like why the coal Um, in other uh, areas. They said kids would get twigs 
Huh? Kids would get uh, bags of salt, garlic, or onion. Yeah, and then, so it's like them not getting a, a gift or a, or a treat or candy like, like the good kids. And then right next to the fireplace, we hang our stockings. So all of us hang our stockings to get a, a, a present or a gift or a treat from Father Christmas. But one of the origin stories that I found was that there was these three poor sisters who I guess got their socks wet and they were hanging their socks by the fireplace so that they would dry. And St. Nick left the gold coin in their stockings. And that story quickly grew and people started hanging their their stockings now, um, playing homage to that story. And now you're, you're stocking stuffer. One iconic Christmas symbol that... Wait, I, let me guess. The treat. Yeah. Ah, got it. So what's what's the origin? And I was like, why did this origin story leave out the tree? Oh, yeah, good point. They, they don't talk about the Christmas tree or putting presents under the Christmas tree. So I, I was looking into the origin of Christmas trees, and apparently um, it started in Germany uh, with church reformer Martin Luther was returning home uh, during the wintertime. So he was enchanted by the stars twinkling through the trees and their branches so that he tried to create that by chopping down a small tree that fit in his home and he actually no. decorated it with candles. No. Come on, man. And so this, this kind of like became a thing in Germany. It moved to England in the 1840s when Prince Albert moved from Germany to England and it reminded him of home. He started putting the Christmas tree at home, but rather than candles, they would actually decorate it with like um, fancy glass. And that caught Much on safer. to the to the people and kind of like what we have now with the glass ornaments. But I just thought it was funny that this whole movie about Klaus and the origin, and then there re really is no uh, connection to the Christmas tree, but it's like in other parts of the world, maybe the Christmas tree isn't that tied to St. Nick as much as the Western. And then I started looking into the actual figure, Santa Claus, um, Father Christmas. So a lot of those stories are based on the real person, St. Nick, or St. Nicholas, which was around in the fourth century. And he somehow was performing miracles and his reputation grew. So that his name was kind of known differently in different parts of the world. And in the Holland Amsterdam area, they actually knew him as Sinterklaas. And when a lot of those immigrants came to the U.S., the name was kind of changed to Santa Claus. I wonder why. I know when a lot of immigrants came over, they Americanized their names. But like, what even is an American name yeah. at that point? Like, what? <laughs> but their original description is uh, a brown robe. Uh, Probably fur. Fur. Huh? Um, and a holy crown. What's a um, holy crown? I don't know. Well, I guess a crown. A, a crown gold that's crown. holy. <laughs> um, so that was like your Saint Nick. Coming from like a Catholic background, like a lot of them always have like a fancy gold crown and things fancy. like that. Um, but here in the U.S., capitalistic and, and advertising, the way we know Santa mm -hmm. was actually created by the Coca-Cola company. Yeah. That so in the 30s, they ran and we'll, we'll put some pictures of some of the ad campaigns. They're the ones that created this big 
jolly, red cheeks, white beard figure that, at least for me, if somebody says what a Santa looks like, that's what I'm picturing. I'm not picturing a woodsman. A woodsman. And a fur not... coat. <laughs> what, what was that horror movie? Krampus? Kromp- yeah, I'm not picturing Krampus. Well, Santa Claus isn't Krampus. Um, and yeah, so he's wearing the big red coat because that's the Coca-Cola red. And they associated that and it caught on like wildfire with American culture. Wow, because they even do that in Klaus. He gets his red outfit from the Sami villagers. But he loses that blue that the Sami villagers have. Exactly, because what are we associating (laughs) with? Apparently Coca-Cola red. I didn't know that. That's wild. I mean, it's wild. But then, of course, you're like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and I'll get into a little bit more of the the outfit, but then that notion of the naughty and nice list. So, if you're on the naughty side, you get coal instead of gifts and and sweets, and so this was a way of changing that behavior of kids cuz they would actually put you on the naughty list at like schools and stuff and like would post it public shaming yeah, public shaming <laughs> to change some of the behavior now when i went to school i don't remember seeing a, a naughty and nice list um i remember they would just say like be a nice kid and you know all of us at least from what i remember all of us got our our treats and stuff but this whole naughty and nice list really just makes me rethink of what are the true motivations because in the film klaus talks about a true act of goodwill sparks another and we see and i don't even know if his actions are true goodwill because who klaus yeah klaus because well his his wife passed away he had all of these kids and granted he's not gaining financial support from giving away the toys but i do think his motivations are altruistic Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like he feels good about himself by doing kind of like how some people just like to help other people because it makes them feel good. But I started thinking like, okay, here's Klaus and and his wife, and maybe they were part of Smearinsburg. Maybe they didn't like it. I don't know what side they're on, the Crumb or the Ellenbows, or maybe they immigrated to this area. But he's like, we picked a place in the woods that we liked and we built our house there. But if you look at that map, that is like way out there. So I'm like, what'd you do, Klaus? What you doing way up there by yourself in that workshop? You think he... Did someone kidnap their wife there perhaps? Or Oh uh, my goodness. You know, that that's sort of just like my uh wild this theories. This isn't a horror and... movie, even though some of the well, shots I mean, you know, the when Jesper first meets Klaus, a lot of that could be a horror film. But he he does have that tragic story where his wife passed away. And sorry about the noise, some um, People are doing some work outside, but when Jasper first meets Alva, we see a picture of her, I guess, from graduation. And I see like a, you know, young, motivated, uh, go-getter type person somehow finds that there's a job uh, in Smearinsburg. She wants to make a difference in yeah. the world. And and Jasper even says that. Why do we do things mm. like to to make a difference? That's how he motivates her to even do the class because when we first meet her, she converted the school to like a fish shop. shop. And she tells him, I took this job in a town where people don't send their kids to school. It seems like education isn't a a priority for them. A lot of the kids don't even know how to read and write. So it's like, 
why does she decide to stay there? I don't know how much or where she was from to be like, look, I put all of my money to come here. But she's been there for five years. Where I'm like, how expensive is it to catch a ferry ride and go anywhere else? Um, granted, you're like, okay, uh, I saved up. I don't, I don't know how much money she has in her little jar. It's enough to refurbish the whole school, though. So it seems like it was plenty of money that she could have gotten out. I just feel like she could have gotten out sooner if she really wanted to, but for some reason, she's still there. And as she starts teaching the kids, I'm like, who's paying her? And is she pay, like, I was like, does she have a similar story to Jasper, where maybe her dad or her parents were like the educational leaders in some part, and they're like, look, you need to establish a school in this dinky little town. And you can't come back until 6,000 kids graduate. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and she just kind of got lost in the culture of Smearinsburg. But going back to the Sami people, and you were talking about this indigenous group of people who are like in Scandinavia, there's actually a lot of uh, controversy between them and I think it's like Norway. There's a town or city called Rovaniemi. Sorry for the pronunciation. Uh, so I'll say it's a city about 61,000 in the Arctic Circle of Northern Finland, and they market themselves as the hometown of Santa Claus. So visitors can come, they, they can meet Santa, the elves, the reindeer, but the Sami indigenous people, they claim that their culture is being appropriated by the Finnish because of this. We associate Santa's workshop and the work is being done by the elves. And there's this portrayal of when did the Sami people become Santa's workers. Mm. And in this film, we see Margu's family come and help out Claus. Now, maybe that's their act of true goodwill. Or they saw, hey, they gave my daughter the sled. I'm going to help Klaus this year. But it seems like they continued doing that for 11 years. Yeah. So... If I look at Klaus and it's like, okay, you helped me. What about next year? Do people just volunteer? Is he now taking advantage of these people? And yeah, these are very like uh, dark, uh, very touchy, controversial topics. Klaus, um, the, the movie about capitalism and appropriation, apparently. Yeah. And what, one of the last things I want, I, I was like thinking of is I see Jesper as kind of like a personified version of like the government where the government sees this side of town or the country Smearinsburg that's not prospering people are not educated and they're going to do something about it so they send help and then Jesper is like motivating people to send letters but also paying it's not just like hey do this it's pay for the postage what did they say? Stir the economy, put money back in. And then he realizes, well, the kids don't know how to read and write. We need to send them to school. So it's like, hey, go to school. And then granted, the kids are motivated by like the things that they're going to get. But as a government, the more educated or the more skilled your population is, theoretically, the more taxes that they're going to pay. And then therefore, your own income is higher. Your, your country's GDP is going to be going higher do you think it's colonialism it, um, 
maybe yeah that's like those are some very uh controversial uh so this cute film review of klaus just got dark and unfun and political on on the surface it's a great film and beautifully made yeah beautifully made as we said the the art the animations the pictures the stories yeah and speaking of when I first saw this film, I thought it was 3D, and then I learned that it's a mix, but the characters are not 3D, so I thought the whole thing, you know? I looked at some behind-the-scenes, how they did it, and it seems very labor-intensive, and I'm like, why would you do that if the final result is just 3D-looking anyways? But the director did say it has a more organic feel, like the characters, he wanted a more organic feel, and that's why... He did this more labor-intensive process, which I'm not one to speak of. All the animation I make, all any piece of art I make is beyond labor-intensive. It's like stupid detailed. I don't know, that's just the way I work. But I just, I was just curious why the way they made it look 3D was through lighting and texturing. But they actually got to paint with light, which I thought was really cool. They did have a program that would make an educated guess about where the light would fall on their characters which I'm still not entirely sure how they did because it is a drawing and not a 3D model but then they could come in that animators could go in afterwards and repaint and do touch-ups of the lighting and then for a lot of their backgrounds they use multi-plane backgrounds so within the software you have like different planes and I've done very more simple things like that in After Effects and stuff but I'm sure they did it in a much higher they probably didn't harmony I think they talked about harmony using that program but I thought that was interesting because it reminded me of OG Disney multiplanes. The concept is still the same, but you're just using it different softwares to create it. So back in the day on their like glass, they had multiplanes. So it looked like you were moving through space in a real way. So they would have different parts of the background painted on different paints. And then you could move them at different speeds. The camera would shoot top down and then you'd have a layer, a layer a layer, a layer. So then like your moon would be on the last layer because as you're moving through the scene, the moon's not getting bigger, you know, if you're a person walking down a a path. They're using the same idea. So it's tradition, but they're using it in a new way that makes sense for production and quicker turnaround. But in terms of 3D, they did make uh, things that weren't organic 3D. So for the 3D models, they would make the wagon or the doors, you know, more structured things. But they did say also the reindeers because that got a little complicated in a lot of the chase scenes. So it is a mix. And that is all that I have on the animation. There's tons more information out there if you're interested. (laughs) But it is really cool the way that they did it. I think it was a really unique seed of a story and also a unique way of bringing it to life. And it's gorgeous. Tell us your favorite holiday movies and your thoughts about this film. Leave any suggestions for future films you want us to watch. And thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks, everyone.